1 Corinthians 15, and toward the end of the uh, chapter, verse 50. where Paul says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And if you would, just turn back over to 1 Thessalonians 4, to that passage that was so wonderfully read to us earlier this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4. It's a sister text on the same subject that in view of the certainty of the resurrection of the body and of the coming of Jesus Christ again, we're to be encouraged. We're to be fortified in our faith. And notice the last verse of 1 Thessalonians 4, in view of that great hope we have, that blessed hope. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So our text this morning is in 1 Thessalonians 15. It's coupled with 1 Thessalonians 4. It's all about the resurrection of the body and the second coming. Jesus has promised he's coming again. And in view of that, we are to take those words and encourage one another. And the original for that word encourage or comfort is the same as the word for the Holy Spirit, who is a paraclete, the comforter, the encourager. The one who reminds us of everything Jesus taught and promised we have in the Holy Spirit. And we are to be that to one another. So that's my goal this morning, is to comfort and encourage every one of us with the certainty that this is not all there is. We're going to get new bodies one day, glorified bodies, and we're going to heaven and forever be with the Lord. So my goal this morning is to encourage us with the certainty of these things. Now, as I come back to 1 Corinthians, let me just take a few moments and do an overview of the whole letter. The first three chapters, when Paul's writing to this young church, he said, there's some of you that are causing division, and it ought not to be. And the way that's happening is you are exalting your favorite preachers. 
Some of you think if all pastors could be just like Peter, the church would really be strong and grow and we'd be better off. Here's a man's man, a fisherman. He's got muscles and calluses and he's bold and he's not afraid of anybody. He'll preach the gospel anywhere if we could just be all more like Peter. Someone else says, no, let's, we need to be more like Paul. Here's a guy that he's theological, he's precise, he's deep. He preaches with boldness and courage. And look at the work ethic of this man. Amazing what he was willing to do and suffer for the cause of Christ. Another says, oh, no, no, no. Apollos, he's the guy. He can preach. He knows how to connect with people. He knows how to shuck the corn. He knows how to be powerful. He knows how to be relevant and get into people's hearts and minds with the gospel. If everybody could just be like Apollos. So we have the church divided. Some are exalting Apollos, some Paul, some Peter. And Paul's saying, stop it. You're dividing the church. And there's only one that should be exalted, and that's Jesus Christ. These men did not die for you. Jesus died for you. He alone should have our focus and our allegiance. Chapter 4, there's an issue of pride. The folks, because they'd been around a little bit, they became unteachable and thought they knew enough. Didn't continue to have the sweet, submissive, teachable spirits that they once had. He's calling for humility. Chapter 5, there's sexual sin of the most sordid kind in the life of the church, within the context of the church. And he's saying this ought not to be. It it cannot continue. And he says to us very very clearly here and, and all through the Scripture that outside of marriage, there's not to be one hint of sexual activity. Zero. No sexuality whatsoever outside the context of holy matrimony. And if there is, it's sin, and it must stop. Chapter 6, they were having arguments, and they were their disputes were they were going to the civil courts. They were dragging one another into the civil courts, and essentially the church was all their dirty laundry is out there, when the church itself was very capable of handling disputes that members had with one another. Don't do that. The testimony of Christ is at stake. Chapter 7, marriages were struggling. This chapter is all about marriage. If you do marriage God's way, it works. And there's nothing wrong with marriage in our day. So many people are abandoning it, saying it's not necessary. It's only entangling, and it causes more problems than we need, and that's not the case. So whether it's the crisis then or it's the crisis now in our day, God's word still says that marriage is honorable in all and the bed is undefiled, but adulterers and fornicators God will judge. Chapter 8, they're claiming personal rights, calling it Christian liberties. 
They're eating meat that's been offered to idols, and that was a big deal in those days when folks were coming out of idolatry and, and with Christians that were exercising their liberties, eating this, this meat, and it's causing confusion and tempting others to go back into idolatry. They say, stop. In chapter 9, the pastors were not being supported financially in the gospel ministry. People weren't giving. Brothers and sisters, we got to give. These men are devoted to the care of our souls. And we need to support them. God's ordained that for the care and the building of his church. And again in chapter 9, they were claiming these personal rights so that gospel outreach was being crippled. Again, they had this attitude that if God, if, if the people can't accept me and all my Christian liberties and my distinctives culturally for who I am, then, well, I guess they don't need what I have, but they do. And whatever it takes in terms of leaving off my cultural distinctives to connect with people for the sake of the gospel, that's what I need to do. Chapter 10, they're killing the unity of the church with complaining, with criticizing, and with self-centered living. He says, you're killing, you're grieving the Holy Spirit and killing the church. In chapter 11, there's gender issues. You think we have gender issues now? Well, even back then. They were confusing men and women, masculinity and femininity and headship and subordination. And men were not taking their roles as leaders in the church as they should. And women were not taking their God-ordained design as they should. And it was causing real problems. In that same chapter, the Lord's Supper is being abused. There's this elite group in the church that formed a clique. They're using the Lord's Supper thoughtlessly, not waiting on others to come. And Paul says, you need to take the table of the Lord seriously. It's a sacred time when the whole body gathers together. And Jesus is sitting at the head of the table. And we are one family in the Lord. And there's no member that's more important than another member. And all the people of God really... It should be as the three musketeers, one for all and all for one. We are one in the Lord as a family of God's, of his faith. In chapters 12 to 14, they were abusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit for self-promotion. Look at how much I have the Holy Spirit. Look what I can do in serving God. And there was confusion, division. He says, don't you realize these gifts were given for the good of the body of Jesus Christ? They're not for showing off our spirituality, but to love and to serve one another. And in chapter 15, of all things, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was being denied. You take away the resurrection of Christ and you've taken away all our hope. Of course he rose from the dead. Of course, in view of that, he's coming again. The graves will be opened, the bodies will be raised, and we will be changed. Our eternal home is in heaven. We're going to see all our loved ones again who've gone before us, but better yet, we're going to see Jesus. So, here's a church with a lot of problems. Did you know that church had that many problems? 
And it's true of all churches. Don't be surprised when a church has problems. A church is composed of sinners who are saved by the grace of God. And maybe not even all of the members are truly born of God. Should I be involved in a church? Should I be a member of a church? I've been before and I've been burned. I've been stung. I've been so disappointed. I vowed I'll never join another church. You get in a church and there's going to be not only responsibilities, but there's going to be difficulties and disappointments. But when you come to this letter to the Corinthian church, even though they had many big problems, a whole bag full of problems, Paul never once encourages the people to leave that church and go to another church. They were a real and true church of Jesus Christ. And Paul is so gracious to them and he teaches them. And he knows that Christ is going to work in them all the way to the end when one day he will present every one of them who are born of God. He'll present them faultless before the throne of God and the Lamb. Now with that, let's go back to our text in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. That lays... I think perspective for us when we think of why Paul at this point begins to talk about the resurrection and the coming of Christ. In verse 50, he's saying we cannot get into heaven in this body. This body is perishable. It's like a sack of vegetables. It only has so long before you can't eat them. It's like a cart and a gallon of milk. It has an expiration date on it. It's really good until that date, but after that, it's probably not fit to drink. Those are perishables, and that's what the kind of body we are in. In verse 51, he goes on to say that not all saints are going to die, death as we know it, but all will be changed. And I think it's important to say that Paul, it looks like he believed that Christ could come even in his lifetime. In verse 52, he said this is going to happen. This coming of the Lord and this great change of his people is going to happen in a moment. Now that word means in an atom of time. It's in a segment of time that is so short that it's you cannot divide it. It's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. General Electric says that takes place in about three one-hundredths of a second. All of a sudden, Christ is here and you are changed before you even know it. There's no looking and saying, he's coming, I better pray and repent. No, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, there it is. But in that time, there's a trumpet. It's called the last trumpet. It's used for the gathering of the people of God. And being a last trumpet, it's for the last gathering. And there's the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. And it's going to be a blast that will wake the dead. We read in 1 Corinthians 4, there'll be a loud summons. 
There's going to be a triumphant, authoritative shout from the Lord, and the graves will be opened, the bodies will be raised, reunited with their souls, and we then will know the presence of the Lord. It's a summons, that shout. Christ will summons all men from all creation and all time to stand before him in that final day. You will be there. And no matter what you're doing at that moment, all of a sudden you will be there. If you're in school, doesn't matter. You're out of school. If you're at office, doesn't matter. You're out of the office. Doesn't matter where you are. You could be watching the game. And the Cavs and the Warriors are in the seventh game. And there's only one minute to go. And they're tied. And all of a sudden, you're not there. And you won't care. You won't care. Verse 53, look at the nature of that change. This perishability will put on imperishability. This mortal will put on immortality. Then all of a sudden, this amazing change. Now we're in this fallen state. And if you've noticed, we're in this continual state of deterioration. Do you know that? The older you get, the less hair you have, and it changes colors too. Your eyes dim, <laughs> your ears plug up, your teeth fall out. <laughs> You've heard of the five beats. There's balding, there's bifocals, there's bridges, there's bulges, and there's bunions. All of that happens because we are in these bodies that are in a state of deterioration. In fact, what it is, is we are caving in. My friend in Quebec calls it the avalanche. Do you realize I used to, 30 years ago, I used to be an inch and a half taller than I am now. I'm settling. And that just happens to us all. We're living in perishable bodies. But on that day, even though we are terminal and we're perishing and we're on our way to the grave, in that day, death will be swallowed up in victory. Will you turn to Philippians with me? Philippians in chapter 3 to another sister text saying the same things. Philippians 3 and verse 12. By the way, did you mark how often Paul uses the expression, brothers, my brothers, my beloved brethren, constantly referring to, to the people of God as those we're all in the same family. You see that in Philippians 3.1. 3.13, 3.17, notice, notice in chapter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand fast, 
Therefore, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul is constantly reminding the people of God in these churches, we are one family in the Lord. We're related. We have the same father. We have the same elder brother. We have the same genes. We have the same blood. We have the same spirit. We have the same inheritance that is eternal awaiting in heaven for us. We are one in the Lord. And upon that basis, he he says to them here in chapter 3, Philippians 3, he says in verse 12, he says, I've not already obtained this, what I'm talking to you about, this pressing on and this maturity and perfection. It's not that I'm already perfect. No, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain in this race. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold to what we have attained. Now, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Make that your focus. You're running the race. There's an end point. There's a finish line. We know where we're going. We know what we're about. And let that drive us. Let it energize us. Let it keep us moving that direction with full speed with all of our hearts helped by the Holy Spirit of God. But he says, notice in verse 18, for many, not a few, but many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. All around us we see those who walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. They scorn the cross. They deny the cross. They hate the cross. They don't want to hear about the cross. But you know, there's also a way in which we can be enemies of the cross. And that is, we just don't care. We don't pay attention to it. It doesn't make any difference in our lives. We can go through a day or a week or a month or a year, and really the cross has no impact upon our lives. It just doesn't matter that the Son of God came out of heaven and was nailed to a tree. It just doesn't matter. We live our lives without any regard for what the Son of God did for us on the tree. He said that's a trait of enemies of the cross of Christ. And notice in verse 19, their end is destruction. There's an end point to this race. And Jesus said, there's a wide gate and a broad way to live this life. And so many are going down that path, and it leads to destruction. Now, there's a very narrow gate and a very compressed way that he's designed for his people to live in godliness in this present world, and it leads to life. 
But he's, he's focusing right now upon the reality that there is a way to live ignoring the cross of Christ where the end of your life will bring you to certain destruction. And he's referring to an eternal and everlasting place where you will perish called hell. And their God is their belly. All they live for is their present senses. To be scintillated. To be amused. To enjoy physical and social comfort. And their glories and their shame. So proud of being self-made and self-sufficient and, and all the ways in which they can manipulate others and, and gain their own ambitions with their minds on earthly things. All we can think about if we're these type of folks is, is the here and now. This is our home. This is our kingdom. This is where we live, and it really doesn't matter about anything beyond. All we can think about is the money we can earn and the houses we can build and the cars we can drive and the friends and the status we can attain. But, verse 20, in contrast, our citizenship as the people of God is in heaven. Heaven is really for us where it's at. That's where our citizenship is. That's where our hearts are. That's where our focus is. It's not upon this world. It's upon heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That word wait in other translations has the word eagerly. We eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how much the coming of Christ and the end of the race is to be kept in view and in hearts, anticipation, every day we live. Looking for Christ, living for Christ, building our budgets and our schedules upon Christ, having him be the center of our lives because we know that he is the end of all things, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, verse 21, who will transform. There's a metamorphosis. He will change our lowly body. Other translations, our vile body or our body of humiliation. He's going to transform them in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, from being this lowly, humble, perishable body to be like his glorious body. What a contrast. And to know that we're going to be transformed from these bodies to one that's permanent. These bodies are temporary. You ever gone camping? Tent camping. Not too many. A few. Okay. Normally, if you can get mom to go for 
three or four days. It's with the promise that you'll take her to some Hilton somewhere later on. Okay, she'll suffer through these several days to go camping. Come on, it's for the kids. Okay, I'll do it. So you you grab the tent out of the attic, you throw it in the car, and you're going to go out camping. You try to get all the equipment you possibly can to make life out in the woods as comfortable as you possibly can. You've got stoves and refrigerators and potties and anything you can possibly think of to be able to endure these several days in the woods. Well, finally, the day comes when you get to leave and go home. So you take a broom and you sweep out the tent and you fold it up and you throw it in the car and you head on home. And that's really what it's going to be like one day. When Jesus comes, these old tents, and he refers to these bodies as tents in 2 Corinthians 5, these old tents are going to be swept out. They're going to be folded up, and they're going to be put away. And we're going home. We're going home. And we're going home to a place where there's no more sickness, no more pain, no more illness. No more of all that takes place that brings tears to our eyes. No more fibromyalgia. No more arthritis. No more migraines. No more viruses. No more diseases. No more of any of that. All the incurables. My two parents. One died of heart failure. The other of cancer. My wife's parents, one died of emphysema, one died of Alzheimer's. All those different types of things that finally caused this body to give up and cannot endure anymore and die, all those things are gone. No more doctors. Doctors, none in heaven. Of course, there's no plumbers in heaven either. We won't have the need. Now, if you're a doctor, you can be a child of God and go to heaven, but not as a doctor. We won't need you as a doctor there. And Christ will do this by the same power. Notice that at the end of Philippians 3. He will accomplish this transformation of our bodies to be bodies like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subdue all things to himself. You know, by the word of his power, God, through his son, Jesus Christ, spoke, and everything came into being in perfection and precision. And here you have these planets who are rotating on their axis, and they're they're revolving around the sun in perfect precision. That's by the word of his power and by that same power that he maintains and holds it all together. He's going to, in a moment, in the twinkling of eye, he's going to change these bodies to be like his. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, if you would. Where he says in verse 54, the reason for this change is this. Death is totally conquered. And we sing, he sings the song of triumph there in verse 54 and 55. And he he takes these two Old Testament quotes, and verse 54, 
is from Isaiah 25. And verse 55, he takes from Hosea 13. And really, he stacks these taunting questions up to emphasize how dead death is going to be. Death is swallowed up in victory. It has no more power to hurt us, can't touch us. The believer has this incredible bright hope now and forever. The believer has confidence to live and he has confidence to die. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life here and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For me to live is Christ here. For me to die is gain in that day. I have confidence. I have joy. I have a reason to get up in the morning. And I have a purpose in which I'm fulfilling and living, running this race for the glory of Jesus Christ. Verse 56, Paul goes on to explain why this death is no longer an issue. And he says, there's no more death, no more sting in death. He's referring to the kind of death. There is a type of death that has a sting to it. A sting that has torment. You can look up Revelation 9. Those locusts that come out of the bottomless pit, they're going to have such a tormenting sting for five months. That he used, you know, I'm from Arizona. And on that desert floor, there's all kind of things that can sting you. There's wasps and yellow jackets and bees and all kinds of stuff out there. But there's this little creature. He has eight legs and he walks around the the floor of the desert, and he's got this tail that curls up behind his back. You know what that is? Scorpion. And if he gets you, you done get God. It burns. It paralyzes. It's painful. And that's the kind of sting that he's referring to to describe this death that does have a sting. And he's warning us about the reality that there is a type of death that has that kind of tormenting sting. And he's again referring to the reality of a hell where some will go and suffer the vengeance of God forever and ever. Jesus said, this place is so bad. Whatever you've got to do to not go there, make sure you do it. If your eye is being caught and locked on things that you ought not to be looking at. And your eye is causing you to covet all kinds of other idols and make them your satisfaction and your hope other than Christ. If your hand is causing you to stumble and you're grasping at all kinds of things in this life and that is your focus, your addiction, You'd be better to cut, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand than to end up in this place of torment. But he's saying here that there's a, there's a death without a sting. No sting because there's no sin to pay for. You eliminate the sin, you eliminate the sting. Jesus has conquered the sin And he's pulled the stinger right out of this death. So I guess I want to ask you this question, whoever you are. Many of you I don't know, but I can just ask you, in all innocence, if you will, what kind of death are you going to die? What kind of death? Every one of us 
If we're not around in the coming of the Lord, every one of us are going to die. It's appointed unto men once to die. You're going to die one day. When you bring a baby home from the hospital, you can put a sign on the crib that says terminal. That baby is headed for the grave. You're headed for the grave. What kind of death are you going to die? The death you die, will it have this kind of tormenting sting forever? Or the death you are going to die, has the stinger been pulled out of that death? And you have the kind of hope that he's describing in these texts. Verse 56. A broken law. The law of God declares your sin. And it condemns a person before a holy God. The good news is that Jesus has paid sin's debts. Jesus has satisfied the law's demands. And what Jesus does with a person, he removes their clothes of sin and he adorns them. He dresses them in robes of righteousness. No longer guilty and nothing to fear. Living every day with confidence because of his atonement. He's settled the sin question. And by his resurrection, he's settled the grave question. And he's saying to us, our our death and triumph over death is certain. And our hope for all eternity. Now verse 57. He's saying now the believer's life is one of continual thanksgiving for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. All our debts are paid. All our crimes no longer exist. And we're set free to rejoice. Jesus is all we need. Jesus makes death something you can face with joy. For precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. And now with every anguishing trial we have in our lives, we see through the grid of this hope that we have in Christ, this bright hope, We can face all our labors, all our sacrifices, and even all our trials with thanksgiving and with joy, with a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. Verse 58. He gives four encouragements in light of the fact that he's coming. And notice how he starts out, my beloved brothers. Again, he's emphasizing this reality that we together have this hope. And he gives us these four encouragements that with your life of thanksgiving, number one, be steadfast. Be firm in your faith. Be solidly fixed upon gospel truths. Because sometimes the going gets real tough. Our lives, getting getting old is not for sissies. I'll guarantee you. Just living life, negotiating all the difficulties you have to face. Be steadfast. Stay the course. Those are the three famous words of the revolution. Stay the course. Don't give up. Keep running the race. You're doing a great job. You may not feel like it at times, but you're doing a wonderful job. Verse number two, be immovable. Do not be moved. And be clear about this. Looking at these two words, being steadfast and being immovable, it's clear there's always resistance. 
and there always will be all of our lives. Here I am on the older end of my life, and I can guarantee you, younger folks, it doesn't get any easier. Your own battle with sin, all the discouragements and disappointments that can take place in life, it doesn't get any... You think, if I just get past this point, if I can just get to this plateau, if I could just get to this level of salary, if I can just get this relationship... No, it doesn't work that way. We're living in a world of woe, a fallen world, in these bodies that are decaying, and they're under the curse of sin. And to run the race, it requires God to spirit to say, be steadfast, be immovable. And don't be moved by the problems that can take place in the church. Remember all the things that the Corinthian church had that they were struggling with. Don't have your eyes set upon men. Keep your eyes set upon Christ. Keep running the race full bore with your heart and your eyes fixed on Jesus. And don't let anything distract you or weaken your resolve. If you leave off serving Christ, where will you go? To what will you turn? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Number three, be abounding in the work of the Lord. Be abounding. Don't give just the minimum in serving Christ. But pursue growth in your spiritual life like a hunter pursues game. With eagerness, with discipline, with sacrifice. Whatever you've got to do, it's worth it to abound in the work of the Lord. Pursue the growth of our church. It's worth it. And the older you get, don't do less, do more. Let the snowball come down the mountain and gather speed and weight and momentum and power. The older you get, don't witness less, witness more. Don't give less, give more. Don't pray less, pray more. The longer we live, the older we get, let's give ourselves abounding in the work of the Lord. And fourthly, be assured. He says, you really do know these things. And I'm not telling you anything new. Because that really shows us we all need reminding. We need assurance. We need encouragement. That's why we have the Lord's table to remember. And he's saying, remember the coming of the Lord and make it primary in the way you think about life and your day. And know that our labors are not lost labors. I assure you, he says, I assure you that your many services and sacrifices and sufferings for the cause of Christ, they're not for nothing. Sometimes we feel, what good does it do? Is it worth it? In closing, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 6? Hebrews in chapter 6. And the writer there says in Hebrews 6, 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved... We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Verse 10. For God, 
is not so unjust as to overlook. He will not forget, other translations have, he will not forget your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Brothers and sisters, all the service we give is is not for nothing. And God will not forget. Your elders' meetings, all the hours, all the weight, all the discouragement, even all the fear and anxiety, is not for nothing. God will not forget. Those of you that prepare for children's ministries, It takes time. It takes sacrifice. But God will not forget your work and your labor of love. The prayer meetings you come to, and even tonight for the congregational meeting, you could be doing other things that could be easier or even more enjoyable to your state in this life. But there's work to be done in the work of the Lord. And just rest assured that it is worth it. God will not forget How that you sacrifice some things you would rather do and give yourself to the work of the Lord. Like giving. How much more you might be able to accumulate if you didn't tithe, if you didn't give to the work of the Lord. You might have more of the things that your neighbors have. But because you are convinced of the race and the end tape and that final day in all of eternity, And that's your focus, the kingdom of God. And that's where your citizenship is. Of course I'm going to give. Of course I'm going to go and pray and serve. Of course. All the ways in which I keep the nursery. And I visit brothers and sisters in their time of affliction. Or unconverted people. The notes I write. The calls I make. The rides I give. All the ways in which you have to practice music or take care of the sound or greet or clean. All the stuff we do in the work of the Lord, it's not for nothing. It will endure. And God, he says, will not forget. You're on the right course. You're doing a great job. And just a plug for you, members of Cornerstone. My wife and I are ecstatic to get to be members of this family. We love our pastors, every one of them, and see them as as an incredible team with a, a mix of gifts that any one of them, I think, are almost indispensable. They're valuable, beautiful men of God serving the Lord. And I, for one, and I think all of you for the rest, we're 100% behind these men of God upholding them in prayer and helping them and supporting them and all the things that they are leading us to do. And let's make sure that that coming of Christ is causing us to look at our neighbors and to to feel the reality of the danger their souls are in without Christ and be moved with compassion for them and in the condition they're in. We cannot turn a blind eye. We cannot have a dull heart. We've got to see things in perspective. So brothers and sisters, let's be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, be assured that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.